What a confluency of themes this morning. Go figure. This morning marks, no pun intended, the final message from the Gospel of Mark. You know, that could be taken a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, which began April 22nd, 2015. But at any rate, today we shall finish. The fact of the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection is historical. The meaning of the resurrection is theological. Why should you care? Well, you should care because people of all walks of faith or people who have no walk of faith can argue, they can discuss, they can debate the significance or the meaning of the resurrection. This is where, where the study and discipline of theology comes to the fore. But the fact, the occurrence of the resurrection is not a matter for discussion or argument or debate. It is a settled question of objective historical evidence. One can debate ideologies and theologies. And where one ends up at the end of those discussions is pretty much a matter of personal conviction. But the question of first importance concerning not just this monumental historical occurrence, but any historical occurrence is, did it happen? And if it did happen, whose version of what happened is most accurate? And how do we know? with an historical event where one ends up at the end of such consideration is not a matter of conviction, but it's a matter of honesty resulting from objective analysis. So there are two sides of a coin. The first being, did it happen? Again, that's history. The second side is, what does it mean? That's theology. The essential nature of resurrection is historical. And we, all over the globe and for all time since Jesus came and lived and died and rose again from the dead, we believers contend that the resurrection did happen. And we do so not on the basis of wishful thinking, but on the basis of the analysis and presentation of empirical evidence. For starters this morning... I want to take a look, albeit and somewhat apologetically in a very cursory way, I want to look at the evidence for the resurrection as an actual historical event. And then we will move to the theological interpretation of what it means. So we begin this morning in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And the young man said to them, Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who's been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Please understand again that what I am going to highlight from this point on is taken from all four of the Gospels, not just from the Gospel of Mark. Now, when we consider the details provided to us in toto, meaning all, everything all taken together, the historicity of the event emerges. Understand that what I'm saying too again this morning is that I know I am preaching to the choir. If I were not, this would be a much longer message and it would be much more detailed and much more thoroughly documented. So at any rate, the feel of the writings, just even as you read through it, has that feel of being history rather than being fantastical. For example, if one considers the Hobbit... No, can't go there. It's too sacred to too many people. When one considers Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, okay, those of you who have... Yeah, the only reason I read it is because I had to read it in school. And I probably read Cliff's notes, if that. But when you start to read it, clearly what emerges is the fantastical nature of the story. The genre of myth is gushing out of the pages of it. On the other hand, the crucifixion, resurrection narratives cite actual locations of various aspects of the whole story, which are both geographically and historically specific. The places of the various trials and the very people whom Jesus stood, are verifiable being connected to history. Jesus never stood before nor summoned Gandalf the White. He was never interrogated by a Romulan. And he was never confronted by Darth Vader or a Sith Lord. The man who owned the tomb that Jesus was placed in had a name. His name was Joseph and he had a home. He lived in Arimathea. And he lived in the first century. There's nothing fantastical about the times, the places of the narrative. And as one scholar noted, the tomb, just for example, was made out of rock, we are told. Not unicorn tears, or not dust of a heavenly nature, but out of rock. The guards who were put at the tomb, they were Roman soldiers. They weren't gods from Mount Olympus. Neither were they men from the lake town under Bard, nor were they elves from Milkwood under Thranduil. You see, when we're told about the Sanhedrin, it was the real legal entity of judgment of the day, and they met frequently in Jerusalem. We know this. It's history. And then, of course, there was Jesus, who was a real person documented by vast amounts of literature and the disciples were real men who had real occupations and they hung around with Jesus for three years and so they were all known by many many people now in all of these facets of the event there is nothing necessarily doctrinal 
about these details. And what I mean by that is these are not by faith propositions as, say, for example, the Trinity would be. They are simply historical realities. Now, I'm certainly aware that there are naysayers even about the historical records in spite of the obvious historical data. But so what? There are naysayers today, are they not? who contend that the Holocaust never happened. But as a record of fact, according to the late Dr. Wilbur Smith, we know more about the details of the hours immediately before and after the actual death of Jesus in and near Jerusalem than we know about the death of any other man in the ancient world. Here's another consideration. Something that credible historians look at is the nearness of a particular account of an event to the event itself. Let me help you understand what I mean there. So let's take, for example, um, somebody who traveled on the Mayflower and landed as a pilgrim at Plymouth Rock in in, uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620. Their account of what took place there carries far more gravity, far more more accuracy than somebody writing about what happened in 1975 because of the nearness of the account to the event itself. Well, we want to note then that the gospel writers' narratives, along with the Apostle Paul's writings, were where any kind of mention or reference to the resurrection occurs, takes account within 25 years of the resurrection itself. And this is important, again, because, as I said, the closer the record of an event in history is to the event itself, it tends toward greater accuracy and reliability. Now, on the wall behind me, you should be seeing a picture of an old, worn-out, stained, what's called foxing book. This is a book that I sought out on eBay Several years ago, many of you know that I've been, as a matter of just, I guess, hobby, but also a matter of personal curiosity, reading widely and broadly now for years about the foundations and the origins of our country, because I was just sick and tired of reading Changing History as we walk down the timeline of history, and especially in modern times, how events that were reported as one way all of a sudden, you know, in the 1970s were taking on a different shade, and then in the 1990s a different shade altogether, because history is being revised. So again, to get as close to the events as possible, I sought out an old book that I could afford to see what really happened by those who were near the event. And so I got this book, and it's a book of biographies of military leaders of the American Revolution. This is, I think, a first edition. That's why it's so heinous. It was not a reprint. It was published, written and published in 1825, meaning it is within 40 years to many of the events surrounding the Revolution. Again, meaning that you have to presume that it's going to be more accurate than something written in the year 2000, where there's all kinds of political agenda and axes to grind, and so we revise history to make it fit our desired outcome. The closer to the event, the more accurate you can assume it would be, again, because, among other things, people 
were still alive at the writing and publication of this book who were in the American Revolution and years leading up to it and the years leading after it. And so if the author had written some stuff that was really spurious as some of the stuff is today concerning American history, people would be speaking up and saying, wait a minute, it didn't happen that way. I was there at Lexington Commons. What do you, what's this hogwash? But we don't always have the luxury of firsthand accounts, obviously. So what do we do to properly utilize available information and evidence when we can't get near the actual event? Well, I'm glad you asked. Enter Professor Dr. Simon Greenleaf, a name of renown, who was a doctor of juris law. He was a lawyer and an expert in law. Well, honest to goodness, true story, while teaching law at Harvard, now this goes back a couple of centuries, Professor Greenleaf stated in a class one day that the resurrection of Christ was merely a simple legend because he himself was an atheist and he had determined unilaterally that miracles are impossible. Therefore, the resurrection was just a legend. Well, being the renowned professor of law at Harvard as he was, he produced a tome entitled A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. That book, old as it is, is still today considered the Bible of evidentiary rule of law, meaning what can be admitted as legitimate evidence in a trial in a courtroom. And why? Well, students sat there and listened, and three of his law students were a little annoyed by this. And so they challenged Dr. Greenleaf to apply his own acclaimed rules of evidence of the resurrection account and see where it takes him. So after much prodding, Greenleaf accepted his student's challenge, and he began investigating the evidence from scriptures and elsewhere. Focusing his brilliant legal mind on the facts of history, Greenleaf attempted to prove that the resurrection account was false. And yet the more the great professor investigated the record of history, the more stunned he was at the powerful evidence supporting the claim that Jesus had indeed risen from the tomb. You see, he was unable to explain several dramatic changes that took place shortly after Jesus died, the most baffling to him being the behavior of the disciples. And it wasn't, you see, just one or two disciples who insisted Jesus had risen. It was all of them. So applying his own rules of evidence to the facts, Greenleaf issued his verdict. And in a shocking reversal of his position, he accepted Jesus' resurrection as the best explanation for the events that took place immediately after his crucifixion. To this legal scholar and former atheist, it would have been impossible in his mind for the disciples to persist with their conviction that Jesus had in fact risen if they hadn't actually seen Christ himself. He subsequently wrote another book titled An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. 
Now, of course, as we well know, none of this stops the criticism of the possibility of resurrection. And some deal with an empty tomb asserting that, well, you know, yeah, Jesus wasn't really dead when he was put in the tomb. And so somehow he sort of revived and he just kind of walked out on his own power. The most famous or infamous, at least the one that I'm most familiar with, is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory was presented by Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, who's the founder of Christian Science, the cult sect of pseudo-Christianity that I was sort of raised in as a child. The swoon theory says that Jesus was in fact crucified, but he didn't actually die when he was taken down. He was, he was swooning, meaning he was basically comatose. He was unresponsive, but he was alive. And so when they put him in the tomb, what happened was the cool air of the cave and the moisture, whatever, he just healed sort of on his own, and he eventually made his way out. That's the great swoon theory. Well, other theories were also advanced. And then in 1986, something really peculiar happened. I was subscribing to the Journal of the American Medical Association in the day, and out around, actually it was March of 1986, they printed an eight-page article with physician-drawn Um, illustrations and all literally dissecting, no pun intended, the crucifixion of Jesus showing exactly how he was hung from the cross, where the the spikes had to go in order for it not to tear out of the flesh, um, where the spear entered the body. It was like a a pathology report, you know, looking at a, a corpse and determining how exactly it died. And this was a very rigorously scientific medical article explaining all of this in the anatomical physical theological processes that took place in crucifixion and they concluded that Jesus absolutely most certainly undeniably was dead there was a firestorm never occurred before or since with the prestigious jama as it's called for the article claiming that it was religious, it was anti-Jewish, it was hateful, it was blah, blah, blah. And this was in 1986. Jesus was dead in that tomb. Well, so another explanation, though, for the empty tomb, which we have the scriptures to thank, is that Jesus' body was stolen. And the Romans concocted their own story about this, and we read about it in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 11. Some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that happened. And when they had assembled with the elders, consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, okay, look, here's what you're to say. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Why that detail is added? Because if that actually had taken place, everyone who had guard duty that night would be executed by the Roman guard. That was unacceptable. And so you see, I get a kick out of the fact sort of that nothing is new under the sun. 
You have politics playing. You have stories being fabricated and people in high ranking paying off people and telling them we'll smooth things over with the higher authorities and all that. Nothing new under the sun. Thank you, Solomon. Any theories which revolved around either Jesus not actually dying or his body being stolen away are smashed on the merciless rock of historical evidence. Few Christians today, another little fact, uh, not a fact, an assertion on my part, but I believe that relatively few Christians today, if you were to do a poll, even realize that Jesus was seen after his resurrection by more than just the disciples. Well, what do we read in Scripture? The Apostle Paul informs us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren called eyewitnesses at one time. And then there's an interesting little almost parenthetical comment put down by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul saying, most of those 500 whom remain until now. Oh, if you have fallen asleep, meaning they've died, died, but most of them are alive. Why would such an addition be made to that text? I'll tell you why. It's because when that was written and people were reading that, they're saying, look, most of those 500 witnesses are alive. You don't doubt, you're doubting me. Go ask them. Closer to the event, you can verify it through all various means and ways. He appeared then to James and then to all the apostles and last of all as to one untimely born Paul says, he appeared to me also. It wasn't the empty tomb that convinced the disciples. You say, wait a minute. Yeah, what? Yeah. Go back to the pilgrimage of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. That was when Jesus had risen from the dead, had not gone back to heaven yet. And he happens to stumble, uh, happens to stumble onto the road with the disciples. And the word there in the Greek is a very powerful word, very picturesque, but it loses its translation. I think it's just just uh, translated in our Bibles as the the disciples were depressed or something like that. The word skuthropos means that they were they were below despair. They were like to the place of just almost beside themselves, thinking, "What? What?" And Jesus comes up to them and says, "Hey, what's happening?" And they're like. What do you mean what's happening? But don't you know what's taken place here in the last few days? And I mean, I get a kick out of this. And Jesus, because they don't know who it is, because they've been spiritually blinded, preventing from seeing who it is. And Jesus says, what things? And then it says, Jesus began with the Old Testament, explaining to them who he was in all the writings of Scripture. It wasn't the empty tomb that convinced them. It was when Jesus appeared to them and appeared to them again and they sat down, you remember, and they, they had a little barbecue at the beach and all of that, right? And they were laughing and talking to him. And, and you had the whole Thomas incident. I don't care what you say, unless I can stick my finger in a hole in his hand. <laughs> Thomas. 
How's that? Oh. There's some other considerations just ever so quickly. In Acts chapter 2, we're at Pentecost. You might remember that Peter was there preaching before the largely Jewish population, and he was excoriating them for having crucified the Savior, the Messiah. And yet, in all of that, nobody there refuted or disputed the claim of Jesus' resurrection. The late John Stott said that the silence of Christ's enemies is as eloquent a proof of the resurrection as the apostles witness. And then we go to Hebrews chapter 11 called Faith's Hall of Fame. The first part of chapter 11 is highlighting people from the Old Testament and what they did because of their future hope to the coming Messiah. And then later on, after Jesus came and rose from the dead, we get uh, an insight here into what happened to the believers after Jesus went back to heaven. And this is what we read in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 35. We read, Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured. They were tortured, not accepting their release, meaning they could have been freed if they just renounced this Jesus so that they might obtain a better resurrection. They believed so strongly in the resurrection because of what they'd seen and what they had heard and what everything was going on and the preaching and the proclamations and all of that and the history of it that they said, we're so convinced there is a resurrection, kill me now. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Ow! They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, your best life now, afflicted, ill-treated, men of, men of whom the world was not even worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. You see, would people endure those things if they believed that they were all lying about the resurrection and there wasn't empirical hard evidence for it? Well, Charles Colson, many of you my age should remember that name. Charles Colson was special counsel to President Richard Nixon. He was one of 12 who were convicted in the Watergate scandals. And he did time at Danbury Federal Prison. Charles Colson, while he was in prison, met Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And of course, oh, didn't this high-ranking politician get ripped on for his jailhouse conversion? But hasn't society been overwhelmed, surprised, and commendatory all the years later? Because upon his getting out, he formed prison fellowship. And then years later from that he formed what was called Justice Fellowship, not nearly well as known as Prison Fellowship, and served as a theologian and one of the great thinkers of our day, an apologist for Christ, until the day he died just a few years back. This is what Colson says about this. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate 
embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. You see, the fact of the resurrection is historical. All right, so then what about the meaning, though, of the resurrection? That now is theological, and we're going to let the Apostle Paul do the bulk of the teaching verbatim for the rest of our time. From 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, I already read it to you previously, so I'll just excerpt it. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He then, though, continues. Remember who he's writing to here. The church at Corinth. Was the church at Corinth royally messed up? Oh, yeah. You just got to read the beginning, middle, and toward the end chapters. Now, here's what he continues to write to these who are claiming to be believers. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you, meaning what? Meaning some of the Corinthians were saying, oh, there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul goes through this very logically for them now, well, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Well, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even, in fact, it's worse, we are found to be misrepresenting God because we've been going around telling people and preaching and testifying that God has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, apparently, according to you, if it's true that the dead are not raised. So if the dead are not raised, again, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Why? Because you are still in your sins. A pregnantly theological statement. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, all those nice things that you said about them and seeing them again, no, they're dead and they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Meaning if we're getting some, some kind of benefit just right now in the here and now immediately and having some kind of faith in this Jesus, Paul says we are of all people most to be pitied. He goes, that's pathetic. So you get some kind of buzz out of believing in this Jesus, but there is no resurrection, which means when you die, you're deader than a doornail and that's it. Well, then we're to be pitied if that's what it's all about and if that's all there is to it. But in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning, testament, sealed, example, proof in the pudding that resurrection is real and his rising was done on behalf of us all that we might know that resurrection isn't just a theory and a hope for wishful thinking. It is also an historical reality. Now he gets really theological. As by a man, referring to Adam, came death. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead, namely Jesus. For as in Adam all die because of inherited sin, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He continues theologically. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. 
But we shall be all changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and at the last trumpet. But the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Because this perishable body, mean this one that gets diseased here and now and it's rotting away. And when we die, it goes into the ground, it gets cremated, whatever it does, it just turns to dust. It goes back to the elements. This perishable body must put on an imperishable one with this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came sinlessly perfect, lived that perfect life to give his righteous life of perfection to you and me if we want it, if we take it. If we don't, then we answer for our sins on our own before God. And then he took the punishment for those who receive his righteousness of their sin upon himself, which meant physical and spiritual death. My God, why have you forsaken me? He was separate from the Father somehow in way I cannot fathom in the Trinity, and he died the physical death and was died as I've already explained. But because he had no sin of his own, death, which is the power of sin, could not hold him. Or sin, which is the power of death, could not hold him. And so being sin-free, he was dead for a moment, and then boom, back to life to say, you see, I did conquer death once and for all. 1 John 5.13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may hope. Not that you're going to be putting that balance in the old good, the bad, and all that junk. That you may know that you have eternal life. And that is why. Because of the historicity of the resurrection and the theology of its meaning. Do you believe in this real Jesus today? Okay, let me have you stand. I'm going to ask Scott Ludick to come on up and close our time. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us the confidence in eternal life, the hope and the confidence through faith in you. Yes, faith that is uh, is supported by historical evidence, but maybe even more so faith is supported by the evidence and and how trustworthy you are. Lord, it's in that same spirit that we ask you to bless the success of this precious innocence in honoring the sanctity of all life, life that is authored by you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.